Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Last Sunday, the catechism class took a field trip and we went and visited another church. The church was an assembly of God, and so we were able to see something that for those who have grown up with Lutheran liturgical worship looked quite different. In fact, there's quite a contrast between liturgical churches and praise churches to the point that uh, you almost can't recognize one or the other if you've never grown up with it. Uh, There's quite a difference. In fact, there's a spectrum among churches from an emphasis on praise and experience of the Holy Spirit to more of symbols and mystery that you see in the liturgy. Up to about the 16th century, uh, this wouldn't have been an issue. You wouldn't have noticed anything like that because up to about the 16th century, most worship was very similar. Now, probably depending on what culture you were living in, it would be slightly different. However, you wouldn't have two churches in the same town doing completely different things. Most of the worship was symbolic. But the Reformation changed all that and kind of blew up everything that was going on. When we began teaching that every individual is part of a priesthood, that everyone has access to the word and the scriptures, it was the beginnings of a modern Western way of looking at things that took shape way beyond what the Reformation was actually doing to modern individualism. And modern individualism leaves us with a lot of differences among us. Different personalities, different preferences, different politics. I remember a man once coming to visit our church and I tried to discuss with him ahead of time about the practice of private communion that we only share communion with those who are members or those who have been instructed. And he didn't understand this and he didn't like it. He told me that what he looks at is it's just him and Jesus. That it's just a relationship between him and his Lord and no one else needs to be involved in that. That's not to mention that this man was actually homeless, and we were trying to help give him home. Now, the whole point of our practice and our worship is to give people a home and to emphasize the connection of family in a church so that if someone comes in who has never been here before, that there's a process to becoming part of that family and that Holy Communion is an expression of that family bond that we all share, that we truly know each other that we're not just all individuals, that we're united together by something greater than ourselves. And it's not up to just personal preferences that everyone do their own thing. We want to be united in what we're doing together. Now, you can look at all of these differences among churches throughout America and the world, and yet what we sometimes overlook is what we all have in common. What we do have in common with the Assemblies of God or the Catholic Church or the Greek Orthodox Church 
And what worship should always have in common is the presence of the risen Lord Jesus. What we're looking at in our text today from Luke is the presence of the risen Lord Jesus. That that's the foundation. At the end of our service today, the graduation service for our eighth graders is going to sing the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, You Saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can we say than to you he has said, who unto the Savior for refuge have fled? That the foundation is the same for any Christian, no matter how the worship is expressed, it needs to be built on this. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So rather than taking time today to contrast what we've seen in this church or that church, what we're looking at is the foundation that no one else can lay, and then how we build on that. And people can debate what materials are best? What is gold? What is strong? What is going to last the testing of fire? Because it's not our job to figure all of that out for everybody in the world. The day will reveal it in the end. It's our job to look at what we're doing and to make sure that our worship is built on that foundation, that we're using the proper materials, and nothing would change this. The presence of our risen Lord Jesus. Blessing us. Leading us. And bringing us together. So we'll look at three simple points. That this is a resurrection vis vision for worship. Blessing from the Lord. Reverence for the risen Lord. And together with the risen Lord. These verses come from the end of Luke. We've been working our way through Luke, and we've come to the last verses. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is resurrection worship. Worship that begins with a blessing from the Lord. Why do we say the benediction at the end of our service? And why does the pastor stand up here every service, Sunday after Sunday, lift up his hands like this and say the words of the benediction? 
The benediction comes from the Old Testament book of Numbers, where God instructs the high priest, Aaron, to say a blessing unto the people at every service. He says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his face upon you and give you peace. The high priest would say that as a representative of God. In fact, the whole service in the Old Testament was representative and symbolic. We don't have time to get into all of that with the sacrificial lamb and the blood for atonement and the tent that they met in. But we do know that God wanted to emphasize his presence with his people so that he said, wherever my name is recorded, I will come to you and I will bless you. When the high priest would give that benediction to the people, it wasn't just him speaking, but God was saying that he, God was present and God was speaking through that man to the people. So here is Jesus leading his disciples out, lifting up his hands as the great high priest and blessing his disciples. He continues to do that in our worship. It is more than just that our worship is reminding you about things God did. It is more than us just wishing promises about God, things God will do. The language that is used in the benediction is performative, which means that God is actually doing it. That we believe that Jesus is here. And he's speaking through the pastor to the people. That the blessing I give is the blessing he gives, and he places it upon you. Now, that can only be received by faith. It's only received because the word promises it, and you believe it. But it all begins with Jesus. The whole service is a blessing. From the time we say in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to the benediction at the end is meant to be Jesus blessing you. He's here. He's speaking. He's blessing you. And the only way that could be true is if he rose from the dead. If he, his Holy Spirit is truly with us as he was with the Gentiles and the Jews in Acts chapter 11. The second thing we see is that they revered the Lord. So worship includes reverence for the risen Lord. Now the word reverence has a long-standing tradition that goes all the way back into the Old Testament. The Old Testament says that the fear of the Lord, the reverence of the Lord, is the beginning of wisdom. And let all the earth fear the Lord and let every inhabitant stand in awe of him. God is great, and the scriptures are picturing the arrival of a king into our presence. But not just any king, the king above all kings, the most high God, coming into our presence. What would our reaction be? God says, let all the earth bow down before him, as you would bow down before a king. Now, I think we kind of lost touch with this because we don't have kings and the people in authority don't really hold much prestige. I mean, when's the last time you've wanted to bow down to a politician? 
we don't know much of majesty. The closest we maybe get is, I would say, a courtroom where you're standing before a judge. Now, there is a certain degree of pomp and circumstance and reverence when the judge enters the room. He's wearing the robe. And you know that your fate lies in his hands. That at the end of the day, he's going to give the ruling, and you're at his mercy. Now, it's even more of an emphasis when you think of the judge being the king, because the king doesn't have a law above him. The king is the law. And God is the highest law. So worship is going to include reverence. When Jesus is parted from them and he ascends into heaven, the Gospels are saying he's taking his throne. He's ascending the throne and taking his seat at the right hand of God to rule over all creation, to rule here in the church. And so they worship him. The word for worship in verse 52 is to kiss the dirt. It literally means to prostrate yourself flat on the ground and either kiss the king's ring or kiss his, the hem of his garment or kiss his feet or simply kiss the ground that he's walked on because you are so lowly in his presence. That's what the word worship means. I really encourage this that when you come into church before you do anything else, what I do is I bow to the cross. I bow to the cross because it gets my heart and my mind thinking right. Where am I? What are we doing here? And I love chit-chatting with all of you, but if I don't first come in and acknowledge the cross, I lose sight of it, and it becomes about me, or it becomes about <coughs> us, and we might lose sight of God. So the disciples bowed down to Jesus, acknowledging he had returned from the dead, and he was risen and glorified. Lastly, they are together. The words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians say, in 1 Corinthians 3, that we read about building on the proper foundation and the proper materials. He ends by saying, remember that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells among you. And he uses a plural. And so I like doing this in the South because you understand. He says, y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In the North, we would say, you guys are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's a plural statement. Y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit, reminding us that what's precious to God is that we protect that home where God lives. What did they do after Jesus ascended into heaven? Before they went out, before they did any work, before they spread any messages, it says they were continually in the temple, blessing God. I told you about that man that visited our church and how he was homeless and he was just out of jail and I bought him lunch and I gave him a ride and I offered to help and then he told me it was just about him and Jesus. And I just thought it's just uh, maybe an American thing, but it's just losing sight of why we're here. We're here together for a reason. It's not just you and Jesus. 
It's us and Jesus. How does a person get to that point where they're begging on the street? And even when they're offered help and offered a home, they say they don't want it. I never saw the guy again. I think there's a sense of individual pride we all have. We all have that sense of pride that I can do it myself, that if I, I don't need your help, I've got through it before, I'll get through it again. But what is God saying? They were continually in the temple together. They were breaking bread from house to house. They were sharing and having all things in common. Their faith was a community faith. And they were blessing the Lord together. Christian worship is about us gathering to bless the Lord. He blesses us and we bless him. And the language of blessing in the Bible is something that can only happen in the actual presence of the person doing the blessing. If the king blesses you with bread, the servant says, bless you, my Lord. It can only be done in the presence of the king. And so we are here in the presence of the king to return thanks, return blessing to the one who has saved us. It has to be done together. It's not always pretty. Uh, we're all on the spectrum, not just churches. We're all on the spectrum from extrovert to introvert, from personalities and preferences, from what we would like to see happen in our worship to what we would never want to see happen in our worship. And we can debate all those things. But the point of all of this is the miracle that God brings us together anyways. The miracle of fellowship. With all our different backgrounds and different upbringings and different experiences, from different cultures and different races, with different interests, different plans, that we should be come together and we should still be able to agree on the presence of our risen Lord Jesus, leading us, speaking, and us returning his praises. Amen.